This time of year in Chicago, many of us have two things on our minds. The holidays and the brutally cold weather. I'm Curious City producer Jason Mark, and this week we revisit some questions we answered in winter's past. Like the time we learned how the city breaks up the winter ice on the Chicago River, and even had the chance to go on a ride-along. An honest-to-God icebreaker. Plus, in honor of the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, we revisit a story about the history of Chicago's Jewish population and the migration pattern that took them from the crowded, impoverished tenements of Maxwell Street to the leafy suburbs of Wilmette, Skokie, and beyond. All of that just ahead. Back in 2018, we answered a question from Elias Saltz. He wanted to know about the history of Chicago's Jewish community. He wanted to know where were the largest Jewish neighborhoods, what were they like, and where did they go? The answer, it turns out, tells a story about the struggle between assimilation and maintaining traditions, how economic mobility changes a community, and the efforts to overcome discrimination. The first Jews came to Chicago from Germany soon after the city was founded in the 1830s. But the largest group of Jews came from Eastern Europe in the 1880s. And that's where this story begins. Now, we can't give you the whole brisket, so we're going to break this down into a latke-sized package in honor of the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, which is now being celebrated around the city and around the world. We'll follow the typical migration pattern of the Eastern European Jewish community through the lens of a single synagogue. That synagogue is Kehila Israel Nusach Sephard, known by its acronym KINS. The congregation moved three different times over the course of more than a century, mirroring the way the community at large moved across the city. To find out more, I hook up with a man known as the Dean of Chicago Jewish Research. My name is Irving Cutler. I'm a retired professor of urban geography and the author of a number of books on the Jews of Chicago, and I've given a lot of bus and boat tours of the area. Cutler's being modest. The 95-year-old has written the definitive books on the Jews of Chicago, is a founder of the Jewish Historical Society, and has guided hundreds of tours across the city. I meet Dr. Cutler at the legendary Manny's Coffee Shop in Delhi. It's been serving up heaping plates of Jewish soul food for more than 75 years. And it's right next to the neighborhood where Kins got its start, what was known as Maxwell Street. At its peak, around 50,000 Eastern European Jews lived around Maxwell Street. The area had already been home to Germans, Bohemians, and Irish. So it was sort of a a used, run-down neighborhood when the Jews came. And it was a very crowded uh, area with a few recreation facilities, uh, sometimes buildings behind buildings in the backyard. So it wasn't the best of neighborhoods, actually. Imagine crowded tenements, peddlers with pushcarts hawking food and wares in the street, tiny shops with Yiddish signs in the windows. This was Maxwell Street, and this was where Jews built a community through institutions. So they built uh, the Chicago Hebrew Institute, a community center, 
Hebrew schools, uh, sort of a manual training school, and they built these 40 synagogues here. With one exception on the fringe, which was reform, the others were all orthodox. But most of them were very small. Uh, many of them were in a rabbi's house, and it became uh, a vibrant community. But by the 1920s, the peddlers and shopkeepers who worshipped at these small synagogues that became kins had saved enough to move out of the crowded conditions on Maxwell Street. Some headed to Wicker Park, Logan Square, Bucktown, and even as far north as Edgewater. But the majority moved straight west to North Lawndale. Affectionately known as the GVS, or Great Vest Side, this neighborhood became the new home for Kins. This is where my mom and her family grew up, at the corner of Spalding and Lexington. North Lawndale may have only been a few miles west, but the two and three flats, wide boulevards, and huge parks felt like a different world compared to the cramped, dirty conditions on Maxwell Street. And uh, Douglas and Garfield Park had lagoons. You could rent rowboats for a quarter an hour. You could go ice skating. Uh, There were ball fields there. And on hot summer nights before air conditioning, uh, you'd take your pillows and you'd go sleeping in these parks. And you had no fear in those days. You had a lot of company there. I slept many a night in Douglas Park. By the 1930s, Lawndale was known around Chicago as Little Jerusalem. Roosevelt Road was the main commercial strip. To give you a sense of how hopping it was, here's some stats. There were 20 Jewish restaurants, 11 kosher butcher shops, 8 Jewish bakeries, 6 movie theaters, and 4 Jewish bookstores. The Jewish People's Institute on Douglas Boulevard hosted thousands of folks every week with its classes, gym, pool, library, Jewish museum, and a restaurant called Blintz's. During the summer, JPI even treated dancers to a live band on the roof in what Dr. Cutler calls the original J-Date. And they built a whopping 70 synagogues in the neighborhood, many of them incredibly large and ornate. A few of them still remain. One of them was Kins. It's now home to the Greater Galilee Baptist Church. This was one of the the nicer ones. And this incidentally used to be known as the laundryman's synagogue because a lot of the founders were laundrymen. There was a synagogue further south a few blocks Anche Motela, which was known as the Carpenter Men's Synagogue, because many of the founders were carpenters. The first thing I notice when I walk into the sanctuary is a huge Jewish star above the pulpit, and the hundreds of stars carved into the balcony and into the sides of the pews that fill the room. Sister Mary Coleman gave us the tour. We love coming here. Yeah. We love our church. And she let us in on an interesting twist of fate. This church came from Maxwell Street. They came to this particular location in 1958. But before that, this church was located on Maxwell Street, 14th Street, somewhere Mm. down around the Maxwell Street area. So when the Jews left Maxwell Street, Greater Galilee moved in. And when the Jews left North Lawndale, Greater Galilee moved in again. But more than a coincidence, it's a commentary on the city's redlining practices, those laws and informal agreements that said where Jews and blacks could and couldn't live. Jewish Chicagoans were able to break those barriers earlier than the black community as they gained more economic power and acceptance through assimilation. But 
Getting back to life in Jewish North Lawndale, the neighborhood reached its apex of population and prosperity in the early 1940s. So if things were so good there, why leave? The movement out started after World War II. The veterans came home. They had low-interest loans to buy homes. And uh, one of the drawbacks of Lawndale, although it was a very nice neighborhood, there were hardly any single-family homes. And the trend after World War II was not only for Jews but other groups to have a home of their own. And areas were opening up that were restricted to the Jews before. And you had expressways opening up the suburban areas, so you started having uh, the Jews moving out. For a people who weren't allowed to own land in the old country, face quotas or outright denials of admission to many colleges and professions in America, the combination of the GI Bill, a booming economy, and less restrictions against Jews proved too tempting. By the mid-1950s, Jewish North Lawndale was a memory. And remember one of those questions we started with? Where did they go? The answer is, they headed north this time, to Rogers Park. And like Kins had done before, the synagogue packed up its most sacred objects and followed the community. It relocated to what we now call West Rogers Park. It was almost as if Roosevelt Road was picked up and dropped down onto Devon Avenue. From high-end clothing stores to fishmongers, Jewish businesses crowded both sides of Devon all the way east to the lake. The whole neighborhood was suddenly and vibrantly Jewish. Rabbi Leonard Matanke has led Kins for nearly a quarter century. In the 60s, in the afternoon Hebrew school, there were a thousand students. They had to learn in shifts because there wasn't enough space in the Hebrew school building. Like Maxwell Street in North Lawndale, the heyday of Jewish Rogers Park lasted about 30 years. The population was solidly middle class and ritually diverse, practicing the various denominations of Judaism from Orthodox to Reform. By the mid-80s, new groups of immigrants, primarily South Asians, came to West Rogers Park in search of their American dream. Many Jewish kids who grew up there wandered their way to suburbs like Buffalo Grove, Northbrook, and Deerfield. And pockets of Jewish life can be found in other neighborhoods across Chicago. But unlike our first two stops on this journey, West Rogers Park still has a vibrant and growing Jewish community with 40 synagogues. That's because a good number of people have either held on to or have rediscovered the Orthodox Judaism practiced by their great-grandparents when they first arrived on Maxwell Street. Walking around the neighborhood, you start to see people wearing a kind of uniform. White shirts and black pants for bearded men in velvet kippot or skull caps. Women with their hair covered, wearing ankle-length skirts and long sleeves. Rabbi Matenki says that for the Kins community, success includes being part of the larger world while reclaiming the Jewish practices that have often been set aside in the name of fitting in. I believe what really has kept the Jewish people together are the traditions and the uniquenesses of the Jewish people and of the Jewish faith. And so the more we look to imitate others, the more we lose a part of who we are. Matenki says the way the neighborhood is now set up makes it possible for the community to follow these Orthodox Jewish traditions. For example, Orthodox Jews don't drive on the Sabbath, so you need to be able to walk to the synagogue. 
There's also an A-roof, a defined boundary that covers an entire area or neighborhood. In this area, religious Jews, who are not supposed to carry anything during the Sabbath, are able to carry items within this boundary. And that's why Matanke believes that unlike Maxwell Street and North Lawndale, the Jews living here in West Rogers Park are here to stay. Since this story ran back in 2018, Irving Cutler, our retired urban geographer, has turned 99. And Manny's Deli has turned 80. To see an interactive map of past and present Jewish neighborhoods in Chicago that includes Dr. Irving Cutler's comments and photos of historic synagogues for each, go to wbez.org slash curiouscity. Whether you're celebrating Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, or gearing up for the new year, winter is officially underway. And it won't be long before the Chicago River is covered by a thick layer of ice. And Chicago's ice-breaking tugs get to work. We'll take a chilly dip into that story after the break. One thing we know for sure this time of year, it'll be cold in Chicago. Like, painful, why do we live here cold? So, let's revisit a question we answered about one of the chores the city takes on whenever it gets crazy cold. It comes from Devin Neff. Devin used to live downtown, and during the winter would often gaze at the river. I wake up in the morning, I see this nice sheet of ice on the river, and then come back a little bit, and there it is all broken up, and just as a, a fascinating process. Devin wonders, what prompts the icebreakers on the river? And is there a schedule so he can watch? You know, grab a lawn chair and a couple of beers, sit by the river in sub-zero temps. Sounds fun, right? Producer John Facile went in search of some answers. I start at the Chicago Harbor Lock, at the mouth of the Chicago River near Navy Pier. The lock is a pair of floodgates separating Lake Michigan from the river. Now, it doesn't take long for the river to freeze. Just one night of temps in the teens will make two to three inches of ice. But Bob Ojala from the Army Corps of Engineers says the Chicago Harbor Lock must stay open. If we don't keep that all free and all of a sudden we get a barge or uh, one of the fireboats needing to get through and we can't open the gates, then we're all in trouble. To keep the lock ice free, Bob's installed bubblers that stir water and break up the ice. It's like a hot tub. Yeah, it bubbles like a hot tub. I don't think I'd want to be in there right now. There's not much commercial shipping downtown in the winter, but buildings near the river can catch fire. The fire department's boats need to get close to those buildings and pump water from the river onto the blaze. Also, people sometimes fall into the river and rescue boats need to get them. The fire department has two heavy-duty tugs for breaking up ice. But just one, the Christopher Wheatley, is an honest-to-God icebreaker. Bill Schmidt, captain of the Wheatley, explains. Well, a normal tug, the bow would come down pretty straight down. The ice-breaking tugs, they cut the bow away so it just it's on like on a 45. The cutaway bow acts like a ramp that the vessel uses to drive itself up onto the ice and then crash down through. The Wheatley is a state-of-the-art floating ambulance-slash-fire truck. 
She's mostly a rescue boat, and the fire department tries to keep her in top shape. And, you know, not chip that nice red paint job. So instead, they call on the water department's tugboat. We like the water department to beat their boat up instead of our fireboat, our new fireboat. So. The water department's Versalis is a 90-foot blue-and-white tug with a cutaway bow. She's the only other honest-to-God icebreaker on the Chicago River. She does most of the work, clearing the way for city construction barges that repair bridges and the fire department. This arrangement between the departments is informal. So unfortunately for our questioner, Devin, there's no schedule, and he can't go watch. But then again, he and I do go on an ice-breaking ride aboard the Christopher Wheatley, so maybe that will tide him over. This is incredible. I mean, I am in love with this. Since this story first ran back in 2016, Bob O'Hala retired from the Army Corps of Engineers and now he runs his own marine consulting business. Reporting for this story came from John Fasile. Curious City is supported by the Conan Family Foundation. It's produced by me and Joe Dassault. Adriana Cardona-Magigad is Curious City's reporter. Maggie Sivett and Catherine Nagasawa are our digital and engagement producers. And J.P. Swenson is our luminary fellow. Johanna Zorn edits the show. I'm Jason Mark. Thanks for listening.